Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It's me, Damien Barr, sharing with you another book of the week. And I have to say to you that it is such a pleasure sharing these with you. When we get book posts and we get it every day here at Salon, we're always sort of fighting over who gets to read what. Um, Luckily, we all have very varied tastes, so there's a home for just about every book. But between us, we take great pleasure in deciding which books we want to try and put on our podcast. So we've got novels, we've got non-fiction, we've got memoirs, we've got poetry, we've got it all. So now is a good time to dip into our backlist. And I'm adding to your list, I'm adding to your TBR with another bit of historical fiction. You know that we love historical fiction here at the Salon. This is a book set in the Roaring Twenties in New York City. It's called The Orchid Hour by Nancy Bielieu, and that is spelled B-I-L-Y-E-A-U. Now, Nancy is known for her historical thrillers, but she doesn't just pick one period. Lots of writers do that, you know. They'll be like, I'm the Tudors, or I'm the Stuarts, or I'm World War I. Nancy ranges widely. Her books go from Henry VIII's Court in the Joanna Stafford trilogy, and in her novel Blue, she explores 18th century England and the porcelain trade. Her new novel is also historical and it opens with a reporter dredging up an old scandal which impacts on a woman called Zia. Zia is a librarian, she's working class, she keeps her head down and her nose clean. But the scandal from the past raises its head. Her life takes a tragic turn and Zia becomes a suspect in the murder of a library patron. This presents an opportunity for her to seek justice. Zia finds herself in the centre of a world teeming with gangsters, prohibition era crime and conspiracy. And honestly, my thirst for gin just at reading the word prohibition, that is unhealthy. Alison Weir, no less, the great historical novelist, has said Nancy Bilyeu's passion for history infuses her books and this one is no exception. It is hugely entertaining. You're going to lose yourself in this story of murder, mystery and suspense. Here's Nancy with more about her book. Hello. I'm Nancy Bilyeu, and I'm thrilled to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, The Orchid Hour. My novel, set in New York City in 1923, called The Jazz Age, prohibition is in full swing in the U.S., which makes the manufacture and sale of alcohol illegal. The excerpt I'll be reading comes from Chapter 8. The point of view is that of Audenzia de Luca, who everyone calls Zia, the main character. She immigrated with her family from Sicily to New York City in 1906. When she was 18, she married a fellow teenager from a Neapolitan family, the DeLucas. They had a son, but her husband was killed in the First World War and her parents died in the Spanish flu pandemic. When the novel opens, Zia and her son live with her in-laws above their cheese shop on Mulberry Street in Little Italy in Manhattan. She works in the cheese shop nights and weekends, but during the day she's a librarian at a branch of the New York Public Library. In this chapter, Z is at her own 27th birthday party thrown by her older brother, Massimo, who's a factory worker who lives in the borough of the Bronx with his family. 
It's a party of about 20 people, all relatives. There's some tension because her in-laws are Neapolitans and her birth family is Sicilian. These two groups can clash, both in Italy and in America. Zia's cousin Salvatore, who she calls Sal, has just shown up at her party and it's a surprise. He wasn't expected and he's not welcomed by everyone. Chapter 8 Sal stood in the corner between the hanging olive-green drapes and a painting of St. Agatha, bringer of miracles. I hadn't heard him come in. I had no idea how long he'd been listening to us. But I could feel his smile spreading across my face. Hey, Sal, I said. Didn't know you were coming. Hey, Kachina, he said, holding up his right hand and rippling his fingers as if playing the piano. Welcome, said Massimo, rising to greet Sal as host. But after one step, he stopped, rubbing his lower back and shaking his head, trying to clear the wine sloppiness, maybe. Sal solved the problem by moving across the room to meet Massimo more than halfway. Standing face to face, shaking hands, they were the same height. While both black-haired and brown-eyed, they didn't look alike. Sal's black hair gleamed, and his white shirt peeked out from behind an expensive jacket. He wore some crazy blue tie with swirls on it. I knew, without even looking, that my in-laws must be upset that Sal did show up. But it was Sal's father, Antonio, who spoke. Why'd you give them our address, he called out. It came two weeks ago. No, please don't start, his wife pleaded. Who's that, Papa? asked Sal, perfectly calm. Who came? You know who. The police. Precinct headquarters said you gave our addresses yours. You haven't lived with your mother and me for years. At the word police, a ripple of unease made its way around the table. No one in this room, no one in their right mind, wanted anything to do with the New York City police. They specialized in giving Italians a tough time. Sal shrugged. Oh, that's nothing, he said. The cops wanted to ask me about somebody. A man I don't even know. Don't give it another thought. Don't give it another thought, his father shouted. They come in, they look down on us, they scare your mother half to death. Rosalia couldn't contain herself and shouted nearly as loud as her husband. They don't scare me so bad. They're just saying that. Let Sal sit down. He just walked in the door. Antonio roared, I wish she'd walk out the door. Overcome with emotion, Rosalia took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes. Through it all, to my amazement, Sal didn't really react. They might as well have been yelling over lost laundry. But when his mother started crying, he said to Massimo, I think I'll leave my gift for Adenzia and go. My brother smiled uncomfortably. Yeah, okay. Even then, my father's cousin Antonio, Sal's father, wouldn't let it go. He growled, that's not his name no more. Haven't you heard? He goes by Charles now. No one spoke up for Sal, not even his brother and sister. I could hear the whispering of my in-laws to my left, and I pushed back my chair and said, I'll walk you to your car, Sal. See ya. It was a woman's voice, reproachful. I wasn't sure who spoke. I didn't look. I closed the door behind us as Sal and I emerged onto the street. There was some daylight left. I wanted to get a closer look at this, I announced, tugging his tie. What kind of design have we got here? Swirls? You've come to this? It's a new style, which you would know of style meant anything to you, he laughed. Whenever he laughed, my cousin's looks changed. Sal had skin pitted from smallpox when he was a child. His eyes were set wide apart. His bottom teeth were crooked. Somehow he managed to carry himself like a good-looking guy regardless. But when he laughed like this, it wasn't swagger. It was real. You could call him handsome. 
On the sidewalk, looking back at my brother's house, I said, Here I thought your father was coming down in his old age. Nah, even if it's on his deathbed, he's still going to be yelling at me, Sal said. I felt a stab of guilt that my birthday party was the cause of Sal's colliding with his father. Okay, so where's your car? I asked, scanning the line of vehicles on the block for his Model T, a battered black one with yellow tire walls. He pointed way down the street, beyond my line of sight, and we set out in that direction. You know, I said, another thing is, everybody was drinking wine before you showed up, and we don't get wine too often. Maybe they're not used to it. Sal said, yeah, and that Amarone is a top vintage. How would you know? Oh, I stopped walking. That wine came from you. This wasn't the best news. I couldn't restrain myself from saying, Sal, listen, you're not a bootlegger, right? I heard a bad story from Mr. Sylvia at the shop. At South Jersey, some bootleggers held up his truck full of mozzarella, thinking it was booze coming up from Atlantic City. It got rough. Me? Shake down a cheese truck? I don't think so. No, Zia, I just made a call about the Amarone. I know some people. Really? I pulled on my cousin's arm to make him stop to face me. Tell me what's going on. Are you sure you're just a gambler these days? No rough stuff. No rough stuff. My 26-year-old cousin looked me straight in the eyes as he said it. And beneath the clothes and the heavy hair pomade and the smooth moves, I saw his eight-year-old self. That boy had never lied to me. Zia, listen, I got a sweet business deal to celebrate. We could have raised a glass to it at Massimo's house. I got a nightclub opening soon. It's going to be special. It's going to be famous. You'll be hearing its name soon. The Orchid Hour. It's named Orchid? As in the flower, I asked, wondering if this was a code word for a drink or a dance or something. As in the flower. Now I was on to some much bigger questions. I wasn't exactly sure what a nightclub was, although I had an idea of what would go on. Dancing and drinking alcohol. The second was illegal. This seemed risky. Sal, this is your business. Okay, you'd like to have a good time, sure, but what do you know about running a club? I'm not running it. We got someone perfect for that job. He's got a lot of ideas. I put some money in. I'm an investor. I wanted to be happy for him, but something about this didn't sit right. How could a young fellow with no real job besides gambling, no education, have pulled together enough money to invest in a club? I don't know, Sal. See ya. What do you want from me, he said, his jaw tense. I'm not going to work a regular job. But your father-in-law, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, just trying to keep a cheese shop going on Mulberry Street. How about your brother? Christ, he's so beaten down from 20 years of hard labor, he looks like an old man. And the people who run this city, you think they'd have it any other way? Italians are crumbs to them. I'm not going to be a crumb. I'd never heard a speech like this from my cousin's lips. I had no idea that he cared like this. I thought this if Sal was on the verge of telling me something. Something that would help explain it. But with that, his intensity dissolved. The confession door had slammed shut for the day. Sal thrust his hands in his pockets and said, What about your birthday? Don't you want your present? Sal pulled a small box out of his jacket pocket. I took a step back, blinking at the gift wrapping, a radiant light blue that lit up this dusky Bronx street like a tiny meteor. Haven't you ever seen a Tiffany's box before? Sal asked. No, I haven't. I opened the box with care, my fingers caressing the cream-colored ribbon as soft as silk. Inside, I found a silver bracelet with an object nestled underneath. I lifted the bracelet to see what it was, and the object leaped up. 
A delicate chain linked them. It was a charm bracelet. The charm was of a sailboat, the ruffle of a breeze carved into the tiny sail. I'll never forget, he said simply. If you ever need anything, Kachina, all you got to do is ask. You got it. He broke our solemn mood with a glance over my shoulder and a chuckle. Uh-oh, looks like Vito's waited long enough. I told him I'd only be able to stay a little while. A shiny maroon automobile eased toward us. I could make out a dark-haired man at the wheel. You got a ride here? I asked, confused. Oh, no, that's my car, Zia. You haven't seen me since I bought it. If it's your car, why is this other fellow driving it? I asked. And I wondered how could Vito be okay with just sitting and waiting outside Massimo's house? Sal didn't answer. He just waved the car forward. The young man, younger than Sal, popped his head out the window and said, I don't want to rush you. We got tickets, remember? Bell goes off. Less than two hours. To answer my questioning look, Sal said, Ringside seats to the fight tonight. Tickets cost a bundle, and Vito Genovese likes boxing as much as I do. Okay, we gotta go. Sal pulled me in for a hug while Vito watched. Made me uncomfortable. Had a hard face for someone so young. Happy birthday, Zia, said my cousin. Come on, Charlie, said Vito. My cousin turned to look at Vito. I couldn't see the expression on Sal's face. But in a split second, Vito's smirk died. He turned to face forward, his hands gripping the large steering wheel. Sal made his way around, slipped into the front seat, and the two of them zoomed off. The car went fast, faster than anyone ought to drive on a street where kids played, before Vito turned left and they disappeared. Thank you for giving me this chance to read from my novel. I've lived in the city for more than 20 years, and I have a lot of feelings about New York. I'm very caught up in its history. I'm passionate about trying to bring New York a hundred years ago to life, and I hope I did so. In the Orchid Hour. And I have no doubt that readers will be completely immersed in your story, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Listeners, if you enjoy pacey, atmospheric stories with a large cast of colourful characters and plenty of old world charm in the new world, then this book is for you. The Orchid Hour is published by Loom, an imprint of Joff Books, and it's available now in all good bookshops. Or you can get your copy from your local independent or from our shop on bookshop.org. Or you can sign up with your local library for free, and if they haven't got the book in, you can order it. And I can tell you as an author, I'm always thrilled when libraries order copies of my book because I know that loads of people are hopefully going to get to read them. And as if that wasn't enough, you can also win a copy of the book in our Instagram giveaway and it ends on Friday. So check it out before the competition closes. As always, thank you for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.